and welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. On our journey to become the most us we could be in this lifetime, on our path to find our inner voice, there are a lot of opportunities for growth. A new job, a new relationship, some challenges, new people, and if we are lucky, a handful of really good books. Today it's about one of those books, one that will not age between the weeks or years or between the generations it may be passed on to. We're speaking today with Terry Tempest Williams, one of America's great writers, about her book, When Women Were Birds. You're listening to An Organic Conversation, and we're your hosts, Helga Helberg. Mark Mulcahy. And Sita Rani Palomar. And before we dive into our really exciting interview, um, you two, Helga, Mark, you guys just got back from a really exciting trip, an enlightening <laughs> trip that may have included some birds, may have included some moments of wonder. Yes, aligned with the show, When Women Were Birds. Um, we just got back from the East Coast, and we spent a few days... Five days or so at the Chesapeake Bay, and um, there was a very moving couple that was with us—a couple with feathers. A family, actually, <laughs> a family of yeah, four. A whole family, yeah. Right <laughs> off the dock where we were, where we were staying, there was about thirty feet away. There was a osprey nest, and just so amazing to see these parents hunting, and then three chicks in the nest that you could see very, very, very clearly. And we had a particular moment one, uh, I think it was Sunday or Monday morning before we left. Yeah. So we've been watching this family and the parents bring, you know, fish and snakes and everything they have in their talons by the half hour into the nest all day long for three days. And on the third day, Sunday morning, we walked out to the pier, literally 40 feet away from the nest. We could we could see the eye of the chicks that close. And that was the moment when they just start, uh, decided to take flight. So they... One, you know, <laughs> puffed up, spread their wings, shook a little, and then everything that mom had told her about flying, she said, okay, this must be the moment then, and, and just took off, jumped off the nest, and very nervous at first, in the first 20 seconds, way more wing flaps than an adult bird or mature bird, um, and then really getting into it right away, and you could see the joy come through and the safety of flight after 30 seconds into it. With it an occasional, beautiful. an yeah. occasional, they'd be like, oh, I'm going a little too fast. Okay, I'm not so <laughs> sure about this, you know. Yeah, so her brother took a few more minutes, a couple minutes or so, while she was, the, her, her, his sister, circling above the nest and say, see, I can do it. And he was like, yeah, I don't know, I'm going to take my time. But eventually he jumped off to, same thing, um, got into it. And then the first kind of above the water surface strike, um, not really hunting yet, but you know, touching the water with their talents, beautiful. I mean, just amazing to see. But two minutes into it, it was kind of time to to test the landing, and it was clear that there were some <laughs> lessons missing. <laughs> in the book. No one ever mentioned this part of it at all. You didn't show me the landing part. You just focus on getting in the air, and now what do I do? Yeah, it was really okay. So we are flying. Oh my God, how nervous! Oh, how exciting! Oh, this is wonderful! Oh, the landing part. So one got down somehow. Lots of shakes with the uh, wing flaps. Made it to the nest, which looked, I'm sure, way smaller than when they when they took off. And then the second one came back and literally slapped the one that was sitting in the nest already because it was, you know, it was the first landing ever. And again, that nest must have looked just like a little post. Um, amazing in the Chesapeake Bay, though. Every single sea sign, every single post that sticks out from the water has ospreys on it or an osprey nest. We must have seen dozens. And, and we saw them building nests. We were going out on a boat one day and like there'd be an open piling sitting out there. And then you just see this osprey land and it had one twig. Yeah, and just placing it just perfectly, and then kind of walking around, looking at it, and then taking off and going to grab another I one. I love that. I love that. I, I I love when I see them picking things up and then disappearing to wherever they're building their nest because I know that's what they're doing. They're getting little bits of hair and fur from animals that have been crawling through the ivy and twigs yeah, it's and com leaves. Really complex constructions. I mean, we we pass by some sea signs with a small boat, you know, ten feet away, and wow, these are these are massive nests. And I I believe they come back every year to their same nest. This is their homestead. This is that that one couple of ospreys will always come back to their same 
nest. And again, there were dozens of nests. I've never seen a greater concentration of ospreys. We have some close by here from where we produce the studio, and that's one couple. And when it comes, it's almost in the news. It's like a big deal. There were there were dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of ospreys circling over it. It was the pre- most predominant bird there. So it was amazing to be in that environment. And then there was that last favorite moment when there was bald eagles here. We're right on the bay, so there's bald eagles too. And I saw a bald eagle the day before when I was out cruising around in the woods and pointed it out. And the next day, Helga and a couple of the guys actually saw this interaction between the osprey parents and this bald eagle that had come too close to the nest, which was just checking out if there was something maybe to hunt or so. And yeah, the bald eagle is significantly larger, of course, and, and much more massive in its body shape than the ospreys, but they told him very quickly <laughs> I had a what moment the like fierceness that of a lion mom, even in the shape of an osprey. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> it was just two encounters and 50 feet midair, and the, the bald eagle took off with that, his t- tail tucked. That happened to me in Yellowstone, actually. We were driving through... Um, Lamar Valley, which is the the one of the low parts in Yellowstone, and there's a lot of wildlife there. And there was one evening, and we we all of a sudden on the side of our car see a golden eagle, probably I don't know, ten fifteen feet away from the window. My spatial relations are not that good, so don't quote <laughs> me on that. But this huge gold eagle comes, and he's being attacked by these smaller birds, and it's clear that that is exactly what happened. Yeah. The eagle got too close to the, the nest, fire of and then exactly, yeah. exactly, you know, you've got this massive, gorgeous, majestic bird, no and these chance. little birds who are just it's dive. Bombing on it. Like, let me teach you a lesson. Yep. Incredible. There's nothing about the love of parents, and um, that actually gets us right back to the topic today. We're speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, one of America's great, great writers, about her new book, When Women Wear Birds. That and more when we come back here at An Organic Conversation. Stay tuned. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. Spicely Organics offers more than 200 different organic spices and dried herbs to choose from. Classics like oregano and cumin, exotics like aji amarillo, and blends like tikka masala. Spicely helps nourish your body while embracing sustainable, eco-friendly, and ethical practices always. Take wellness into your own hands and creativity into your own kitchen. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at spicely.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic today is Terry Tempest Williams' new book, When Women Were Birds, The Path of Finding One's Voice. And before we dive into that interview, as always, here is the update from the world of health, well-being, and beauty, a.k.a. Chef Sita, Sita Radi Palomar, and her holistic bite. 
Well, this week, I want to talk about headaches. Headaches, something that just about everybody over the age of 16 has experienced at some point in their life, some of us infrequently, some of us very frequently, and they range from minor annoyances to really strong recurring pains. And in any event, when we get a headache, it can actually tell us an interesting bit of information about our bodies. I, in particular, tend to get headaches just about once a month with hormonal fluctuations, but people get headaches for many different reasons. And one of my teachers, Dr. Anne-Marie Colbin, who started the Natural Gourmet Institute for um, Health and Culinary Arts on the East Coast, has this really interesting take on where headaches come from and how you can balance whatever energy is contributing to the pain and recorrect it. So in addition to the structural reasons why you may have a headache, she has four other types of headaches, and those fall into the following categories. Expansive headaches, contractive headaches, caffeine-related headaches, and liver-related headaches. And understanding which one might be the cause for your particular headache can give you a clue about how to get relief from it. So a caffeine-related headache is the result of having too much or too little caffeine. And if you've ever had to detox from coffee... (laughs) and tea and chocolate Mm -hmm. and everything that has coffee in it, boy, do you know what that pain is like. It is pretty miserable for a few days. And the only thing that gets it back is more caffeine. But if you're trying to give up caffeine, that's not really a solution. So some tricks that help you get over a caffeine headache are cinnamon in your morning breakfast or your morning beverage, whether that's a smoothie or tea or coffee substitute, something that wouldn't have caffeine in it, because cinnamon helps to promote blood circulation. So that will help move that. And I've also read that ginkgo biloba is helpful for a caffeine-related headache because it helps to dilate your blood vessels and get the blood flowing as well. Aside from the caffeine headache, there's also the liver-related headache. And Dr. Colbin says that these liver-related headaches can be the result of consuming too much fat. You know, the liver is a place where a lot of our fat metabolism happens. And so if you found yourself in a period of overindulgence, whether it's too many, you know, summer barbecues (laughs) or too much food during the holidays, these overconsumptions of fats can be helped by consuming foods that support the liver, particularly fruit and vegetable juices made from beets and kale or lemon water, because these are things that are fantastic to promote liver health. And that will help to correct if you've had too much fat. So you can ask yourself what the reason was and and try this out and see if this works. Now, the other two might be a little bit harder to grasp because it's not quite as concrete. They're considered the expansive and the contractive headaches. And the they refer to principles of um, the direction of energy, the directional energy that food has. If the food you eat is a grounding food, you know, you think of your root vegetables as being very grounding versus a very lifting food, which are the foods that are very high in water content. And if you want to read more about the expansive and contractive properties of foods, Dr. Anne-Marie Colbin has a great book called Food and Healing. But when it comes to headaches, basically, the expansive headache is caused by too much sugar or alcohol. And that can even be too much fruit. And it can also be the result of overeating. So ask yourself, did you maybe have a little bit too much wine at last night's party? Or did you eat anything other than watermelon at this weekend's barbecue? Those are potential triggers for a headache resulting in too much sugar and too much alcohol called an expansive headache. And what Dr. Colbin recommends is counterbalancing that with some saltier foods, something like olives or pickled umeboshi plums, which I talk about on this show for frequently. Or gomasia, which is a fantastic macrobiotic condiment. It's a combination of ground sesame and sea salt that you can put on top of your foods. And the saltiness helps to counterbalance all of that alcohol, the sugar, the overindulgence that you've experienced. So that's one kind. The flip side of that is the contractive headache. That's the opposite energy that results from an excess of salt, for example, or protein if you've had too much animal protein, or simply if you haven't eaten enough food to begin with. You can counterbalance that kind of a headache by eating something sweet or sour, something like a a sweet and sour fruit, 
applesauce, or even a really good natural lemon sorbet. These things will help to counterbalance the effects of having too much salt in your system that could be causing your headache. So I hope this has given you a couple different things to ponder as a reason for why you may be afflicted with these minor annoyances or these recurring headaches and given you some new tools to put into your home remedies. So good luck with that. And that was this week's Holistic Bites. Thank you, Sita, Chef Sita, Sita Rani Palomar. Wow. Expansive and contractive headache. I, out of the blue, I never, I never really have headaches, but I did get two migraine cases. Does she consider that, or do you consider that part of a headache, or is that a completely different? Of course, and that's one of the things I said very at the very beginning of the holistic bite was that outside of the structural reasons why people get headaches, these are some of the other reasons. And I know because you told me about this migraine, it was the result of an adjustment in a yoga practice that was really intense. abrupt and intense. So these aren't the only reasons that people get headaches, but if you get minor headaches and you know it's not a mm -hmm. migraine, it's not the result of maybe a hormonal fluctuation or any kind of structural reason. The other things where you just, I can't understand why I have this headache it might be one of these reasons and those might be and the things you can try the dehydration to part if you had you know a glass of wine or a couple and you sweat that day and you were outside and you played and you don't even realize um I'm, i've been trying to drink three liters for the last five six weeks of water a day and it makes such a difference it's it's amazing i've never been as hydrated in my life actually well and that's a good point but something that i like about her approach to it is it goes deeper than just saying dehydration sure. are you dehydrated because you've had too much salty food are you dehydrated because you've had too much alcohol because yes water is a great solution but if you add water with some lemon juice that will that will address one type of headache, whereas if it's a result of too much alcohol, you want to do something that's maybe on the on the salty side. And, you know, I've always found it interesting whenever I do cleanses is the hardest thing for me is that because I drink one cup of coffee a day. I'm not a major coffee drinker, but I will get that headache when I first start a cleanse. And mm -hmm. so I, uh, you know, in some of my cleanses, they allow you to do, do green tea, which is minimal caffeine, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm about ready to start a new program. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I should get some ginkgo, mm -hmm. right, and start that maybe a little bit early to get that blood flow. And then also cinnamon. I do smoothies nearly every day. And to throw some cinnamon in, in my smoothie would be easy to do. And, and that might, you know, be beneficial too. So those are Absolutely. great tips. I love that. Fantastic. Again, thank you, Sita. Sita Rani Palomar for her holistic bite. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our guest today is Terry Tempest-Williams, one of America's great writers, as we are talking with her about her new book, When Women Were Birds, The Journey of Finding One's Voice. Terry is joining us today from Wyoming. Are you with us, Terry? I am. Pleasure to have you. So, Thank you so much. Yeah, Terry, um, Last year was my first introduction to your writing. I was uh, up in the mountains in Idaho, and I was next to a hot springs, and a friend of mine re started reading some of your short stories from the book Red, in which I thoroughly enjoyed, and it transported me to the desert instantly. And <laughs> so that was my first introduction. And then I grabbed When Women Were Birds when I was at Powell's Books up in Portland just uh, in the last six months, and I dove into this book, and I have loved it so much. It's just uh, really resonates with uh, where I am in my life right now. So what it makes me, you know, wonder, you know, where does the title come from? Where does where does this When Women Were Birds, you know, where did that come from for you? I'm going to dodge that question for just a minute and sure. say, Mark, that <laughs> no matter what someone was reading in a hot tub would sound good. <laughs> I can't take that as, as high praise. Um, there's a lot of hot springs around here, and it just sends you into an altered state. So I think that's the most important thing. Uh, when Women Were Birds, it actually came in a dream, um, and I trust that. You know, it's not something I talk about much, but, you know, I think we have our outward life and we have our inner life. And for me as a writer, those two worlds are in constant correspondence with one another. And I, I wish I could tell you I knew what it meant, but I feel it. When women were birds, there's a certain amount of irony in it because within the natural world, um, the vocal member of, of any particular bird species is, is usually the male species. So when women were birds, 
it harkens back to a time when women had full use of their voice. Um, but I also think that when women were birds, it speaks to our sense of flight. It speaks to um, what the French deconstructionists talk about. Um, do we have the courage to take back our mother tongue? That usually we have two responses. We take flight or we speak the dominant language. And what would happen if we were to speak the language that is truest to our nature? Hmm. That reminds me of, uh, you know, my experience. I'm fortunate enough to live in a place where I wake up hearing to birds sing. And I'm sure that I've heard birds sing everywhere that I've lived, but something about where I am now, hearing a a mockingbird who's going on, you know, 20 different songs, one after another, and just admiring where, where she picked those up and what made her put them together in that sequence. But there really is a, a beauty and a dedication to using the voice when I hear the birds sing every morning. And so it, it reminds me that we are all born with voices and we are either not using them or they're not being heard. So can you elaborate on, on what part of this, aside from not using our voices, but what part of this could be a result of people not listening to other people using their voices? It's such a great point, Sita. A couple of things. I, too, listen to birdsong the first thing when I wake up. Um, that is my meditation. And it struck me that just in the last two days, the, bird, the birds have stopped singing here in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I wonder why. You know, I've only heard that one other time in the summer when birdsong stopped, and it was right before an earthquake. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying attention to that. You know, I don't think it's because there's a chill in the air. But it goes to your point, you know, when do we stop speaking? And I'm very mindful of the power of Audre Lorde and her classic essay, The Transformation of Silence into Language in Action. And she talks about how our silences will not protect us. And I keep thinking, yes, we all were born with a voice. Each of us has a voice, both female and male. And at what point do we start being cautious? At what point, you know, what is it in our lives that stops us from speaking that um, Helena Sixou says, we as women must learn to speak the language women speak when there's no one there to correct us. I just got back a bit ago from a naturalist walk to Phelps Lake at the base of Death Canyon, and there were three families on this walk, and the naturalist invited all of us to sit down and pick an object in the woods. This is a lodgepole pine forest, and to draw that particular being, object, thing. And we spent probably 20 minutes doing it, and there were seven children there were seven adults in the naturalist. And then he had us put all of our pieces of paper in the center where we were sitting, and then each one of us would talk about it. I was heartbroken by how many of the children said, I don't know how to draw. Mine's terrible. These are children that were six and seven years old. And I thought, that's too young to have that drilled into you, that your drawing, your voice, as it were, doesn't count, isn't as good as. So you ask, is it that we're not being listened to? I would say that's a really profound statement. We're not only not being listened to, but when we do speak, we're not being heard. And I think there's a difference there. I also would say that we're not being encouraged or that, that for some reason we've stopped trusting what we know at our absolute core. And there's a cost to that. Well, and that specific story that you shared about the children, you know, putting out right away, this is not a good drawing, I, I don't draw very well, shows me that there there is a voice in their head that they're listening to that may not be their authentic, free voice. It's their self-critical voice, which is much louder. And there's a, there's a specific line in your book that, for me, had so much power that I'd like to share on the air, if, if it's okay with you. But it really, for me, sums up what, what this story was that you just said. And I think what, for me, was the, the overall empowerment in the book for me, which is, I take a deep breath and sidestep my fear and begin speaking from a place where beauty and bravery meet within the chambers of a quivering heart. I appreciate you reading that, and that is at the end of 
of a meditation on speech. Um, as a child, I had a lisp. When I get nervous, it reappears. And there's not a moment when I don't open my mouth that I don't feel that quivering heart, even now. And I think that it's a great point in terms of, you know, we can still speak even though we're afraid. And I think it's it's a matter of embracing our fears, seeing fear as a companion rather than as a terrorist. And there isn't a moment ever when I don't have to stand up before an audience and, and pause and take a deep breath before I feel like I'm going to pass out. It goes back to that critic you were talking about, the other voice that speaks to us and silences us, um, the inner sensor. And there's also the outward sensor, and, and both are equally as damaging. I was just reading um, one of Virginia Woolf's essays, and she writes, Imagine a woman by a river fishing. Her line of imagination flows freely with the moving current. Her unconscious, given full rein, and the woman loses herself in its free exploration. Suddenly and brutally, this flow is interrupted, for the woman's flowing mind crashes against the hard rock of censorship. A woman cannot think that a woman should not say that. And I think it's not always that that sense, I better not say that, I could get in trouble. I better not say that because people might think less of me. I better not say that um, because I'm not sure. But if we continue to stop ourselves, then we stop the necessary conversation. Speaking especially when we experience fear, and especially for women. I do want to talk about gender in just a minute. Um, we're speaking with Terry Tempest-Williams, the author of over a dozen books um, about her newest book, When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice, really on the journey of finding our own voice and an invitation. Terry, can you talk about how how this idea of the book came up and, and what's the, you know, how, how you built the book? It starts with you finding your mother's journals and it, it goes on from there. But what was the inspiration to give voice or, or to, to reflect on the importance of voice? Again, the book came out in 2012 and um, I haven't talked about the book for some time now. So I'm going to be really honest. You know, I think, not that I wasn't before, but I realize now the impulse to write this book was because my own speech was threatened. I was diagnosed with a cavernous hemangioma in 2009, um, a tangle of blood vessels that sits on the part of my brain that rules overseas direct speech, pattern mind, metaphor, all the things that, that we care about on this phone call. And I remember actually driving back from Salt Lake City where I'd just been to the doctor to f hear what this diagnosis was and um, that it, at any point, you know, I could lose my capacities in that way. And I remember thinking, if only I could talk to mother, what would she say? Because she certainly faced her own mortality and very difficult things with her um, cancer, both breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And then as I was driving, which often happens in these big, wide, long distances in the American West, it suddenly came to me, well, she, she did leave you her thoughts, her blank journals. And it, it stunned me. And I realized I had absolutely, you know, denial is a very powerful emotion. It's a very powerful modality that in 25 years I had so pushed that fact down into the tips of my cowboy boots. And the, the truth is, um, a week before my mother was dying, we were lying on her bed. I was rubbing her back. She was facing the window. It was a cold January day. And she said, Terry, I'm leaving you all my journals, but you have to promise me you won't look at them until after I'm gone. I didn't know my mother kept journals. I gave her my word. And then she told me where they were. And we went and discussed other things. Uh, a week later, she died. A month later, I found myself in the family home. It was a full moon. And I remember thinking, now, now is the perfect time. Finally, I will be able to know what my mother was thinking. She was a very private woman. The journals were exactly where she said they would be. Three shelves filled with beautiful hand-bound cloth journals. I opened the first one. It was empty. I opened the second one. It was empty. The third, empty. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Shelf after shelf after shelf. All my mother's journals were blank. 
It still gives me chills, and I've read the book. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, it was a second death. It felt like a betrayal. It felt like a cruel joke. What was she saying? Was she saying, fill them? Was she saying, fill them because I couldn't? Was it an act of defiance? Because growing up Mormon, Mormon women write. You keep a journal. You keep a record for posterity. My mother kept her journals, but they were all empty. Um, and that's back to your question, Helga, that's where the book began. What was my mother trying to say? What is the nature of voice? How do we find it, lose it, retrieve it? And uh, I think the surprise to me, because I never know where a book is going, otherwise I wouldn't write it, was that at the end of this pursuit of voice, I think I may have written a book about silence. And actually, Terry, listening to you here and, um, and having read the book myself, I it just... You mentioned in the book where your mom kept telling you to let go at certain points in your life, and that this is just coming through so clearly for me, and what you're saying is is letting go. I think that's exactly right, Mark. And isn't that our daily challenge, our daily practice? I just wrote that in my journal last night, sitting on the porch in twilight. Um, not an easy thing, but I love, I have come to love what emptiness holds. I have come to love the kind of silence that sustains rather than destroys, um, a silence whereby I actually can hear my voice. And I think that has everything to do with inspiration. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Terry Tempest Williams today about her book, When Women Were Birds, here on An Organic Conversation. Terry, um, stay with us. We do want to talk about the gender. It's specifically about women, but so much applies to us men as well, if not even more so, especially the listening part. We'll be right back. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Spicely Organics' emphasis has long been on the natural health benefits of organic spices. And now, Spicely is excited to share more health benefits with the introduction of their hand-blended organic teas. Choose from black, green, white, mate, oolong, pu'er, and herbals blended with their signature spices like vanilla rooibos, sweet turmeric, and honey lavender. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at spicely.com. Back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our guest today is Terry Tempest Williams, one of America's great authors, and we're speaking about her book, When Women Were Birds. Uh, reflection on finding voice, specifically that of women. But Terry, as a man and working in sustainable agriculture, where 
the feminine, the expression of the feminine, the voice of nature is is the main focus of for me about the sustainable food movement. It is an invitation to find voice beyond gender. You are making it specifically about women because of maybe you as a vantage point as a woman. What can we learn from it as men? What's what's the message to the to the male gender? Yeah, it's such a great question. And my husband Brooke and I talk about it a lot. You know, our language fails us. We don't know really how to talk about the feminine without having it be mired in gender. Certainly as a woman, that is my experience. And I certainly think there's a long line of silencing women. But I also appreciate um, where we are at this point in time and how hard it is for men to find the feminine voice within and have it be honored. You know, Brooke is working on a book right now with exactly that, of how how does a man honor the inner voice and intuition and be valued in a culture of that values aggression. And I think that's that's a question for all of us. So I think, you know, what does when women were birds have to say to men? There's a line that comes to my mind that if a man knew what a woman never forgets, he would love her differently. You know, at in that particular section, I'm talking about sex and lovemaking and pregnancy and abortion and all of the things that remain taboo in so many places. But I think it's also how do men and women have a conversation that goes deep to the heart of our humanity, that reminds us beyond gender what it means to be human. And I think in, in that case, it goes back to the question of listening. How do we really listen to one another? I also think that it's, it's like you said, what, what it means to be human. I also feel like, and this is something I get strongly from your book, it's also what does it mean to be an animal? What does it mean to be eternal? And that's the what you said, what, what Brooke's book will also address, which is the, the voice of intuition, which I think is, a feminine quality, and not to say that it only applies to, to females, it applies to everybody, but that quality of intuition seems to be a feminine principle, and it is the thing that unites us with all other tribes of species, and it is the thing that unites us with all places of the world, this one and the one before and the one after. So something that I think everybody gets from reading When Women Were Birds is that how to support that voice of intuition, that voice of truth that lives within you, that yes, you will probably be afraid of it as the quote from your book that we read earlier addresses, but it, it calls you to courage. It calls you to look at what is, what, is an in, what is an integration of that which is beautiful and that which requires bravery in order for you to live a life that contributes to beauty and bravery on this planet. Yeah, you call it in, intuition and um it's also creation uh, for me because creating oneself in the shortcomings of words often, which don't 100% describe you, we're circling back to listening and what are we really trying to say, which again, in, in nature, Mark, you have many experiences where you apply that and actually, Terry, you come from that nature place as well. well. You know, there's, I have a student and I, I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. We just came back from a two-week course in the Centennial Valley in Montana and this student has a tattoo of a pronghorn, and he shared it with all of us. It's on his shoulder. And that's really all he said. Well, as he began writing his natural autobiography, how place has informed who he is as a man, um, it turns out that he was an athlete of one of Nike's runners. He has run professionally. He's gifted. He's, you know, run all these marathons and, and broken records and whatnot. And then he was let go. And it was a great disappointment as he was getting older that his body, you know, wasn't in the, com the spirit of the competition that Nike demanded. And so what did he do? His first instinct was to return to Wyoming, to the Wind River Mountains, where his family has a generational ranch, and he said that he ran with his herd. He ran with the pronghorn antelope. And his essay was so 
profoundly moving and so based on, you know, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be a Nike runner? What does it mean to break your time repeatedly and then to be let go? And then what does it mean to return to your, as he said, spirit brothers, the pronghorn, and really run through that sea of sage um, with the wind, even wind horses, as they are known among Native peoples. And to me, that speaks to this other way of being in the world that brings us back to our center, our core of, of engaging with other, even other species. Um, again, just at Phelps Lake, because I just got back, you know, I was thinking, does it matter if I, if I write, really? Um, th- who cares, you know? Hmm. That's where I was as I was writing in my journal. And just then, this beautiful butterfly landed on my wrist <laughs> and stayed on my wrist as I finished that sentence. You know, to me, these are the moments where the inner world and outer world merge in that synchronistic pleasure. It happens all around us. It's commonplace. Again, if we live in that place of stillness and go beyond the surface of things. Well, and you know, Terry, the other day I was sitting out in my pasture and the crows were doing their laughing, talking thing that they do in the trees around me. And this, what you, where you just finished with this, just is reminding me of, of finding my own voice as I was cawing back and forth to them, and they were laughing at me, tr- trying, trying to, <laughs> trying to, trying to uh, be part of the conversation. But and yet, you love them. <laughs> I love them. I love them so much. They always bring a smile to my face, and, and I just and you did to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's can, right. That's right. <laughs> Who says that birds and animals don't have senses of humor? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Terry, thank you for joining us. We are out of time, but it was um, one of those very short hours where we wish we had two or three with you. Um, thank you for your work ongoing. I just love that we ended in a spirit of joy. And I think at a time when there's so much despair around us, that becomes the crucial moment engaging with joy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. In the yeah, face of it all, thank, thank you, you, Terry. Thank you so much. That's Terry Tempest-Williams, who was joining us today from Wyoming in our conversation about her book, When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. If you haven't picked it up yet, please do so. Uh, this is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And um, coming up is the world of produce, what's in season Nature speaking to us in many forms, even in the form of what, whatever it may be this week, Mark. We'll be back. Thank you so much, Terry, for being Bless with us today. Bless you all. Thank you. Bless you. Bye-bye. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And now, here's the weekly update of what's going on in the world of produce. We're literally on the produce docks. Here's Mark Mukehi and what's in season. What's in season, Mark? Today we're talking about something that you see in the produce department every day of the year that most people buy probably once a week or every at least every couple of weeks, some people every day, and that is Haas avocados. And there actually is a season to them, and there's actually a time when they are awesome, and there's actually the best avocado, the best Haas avocado <laughs> in on the planet, and that happens to come right now at this time. And we have our friend and produce guru, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Earl Herrick from Earl's Organic Produce, going to talk to us about Haas avocados and why now as opposed to some other time. Why hey, now, Earl. Why now? Hey. Hey. We're great. We're how are great. you? How are you? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it's great. I'm great. Uh, Haas avocados are great. Uh, <laughs> okay. That, thanks for the show, Earl. Yeah. <laughs> Along with peaches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. We, you know, it is, they are perfect right now. And I would say this isn't the only time, but this is one of the times. And it's not the only time because the California season stretches uh, just like the uh, geography and the topography from San Diego all the way up to Santa Cruz. So at different times of the year, you can find that quote-unquote perfect avocado. Right now, we get to have them perfect from the San Diego area in Fallbrook. You know, think um, between L.A. and San Diego, this wonderful region about five to ten miles off the coast, inland, where it gets, uh, you still have that coastal influence, but you still get wonderful heat. Right now is when you want to be eating them. I was... Um, I ate lunch of the day at one of these at one of the one of our clients. It was a nice little rice and and lettuce and tomato dish, and they sliced real thinly avocados in a real pretty floral arrangement all around it, and it was just like butter. Mm. It was just absolutely wonderful. And the way you know when it's really in season is when you cut it. It's the the green and the light green gets mustard leak. In other words, the green is still green, but the yellow turns mustard color. And that's when the the uh, oil is is more mature. It's really high in flavor and oil. And that's when you can tell when you cut one when it's really ripe. Well, and this time of year is kind of the starting of that. And yeah. there, there are other avocados. I mean, Haas avocados oh. come from Mexico. They come from Chile. You know, I just the other day, um, we were on the East Coast uh, together, and we found a Haas avocado from Peru. So they're, Bizarre. They're, yeah, they're all... <laughs> 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 we all have our yes, different reactions, don't we? Yeah. Um, well, the thing for me, what, the point that I was bringing up, that I want to bring up, Earl, is when I started the conversation about this being a special time, is yeah. there are other avocados out there, and they may actually even be cheaper, right? Well, no doubt about that, Mark. They are. Uh, the, I think California is going to be more expensive. I think one of those reasons is they've been proven to be so much better, and they really take advantage of that. The Avocado Commission in California is very strong, really promotes the growers. You know, they have this uh, advertised about here as hand-grown avocados, which is kind of a funny statement, but I'll tell you, it has caught on. Um, you, For example, when you talk about that Peruvian avocado, you know, you were so kind enough to give me both of the ones that we had, and uh, as soon as I got home, I ate them, and they were like an early crop California. It was light green inside. The flavor was very mild, which is not to say that they're bad. I guess I'm, I'm speaking about my preference of that real uh, nutty flavor, really rich in consistency. So um, the California is just year in, year out, just a much better avocado. Um, of course, Mexican crop is around. That's generally a uh, fall through spring a Peruvian, my understanding is they're in season right now. It's a very, it's kind of a new commodity that's that's uh, being marketed. Most of them up to this year have gone to Europe, and with the crop a little smaller this year in, in out of California, they've uh, taken the opportunity to bring them into the states. Earl, why is it better in California? Because of soil composition, or climate, or less shipping time, I, yeah. or all of it? 
I, I think the, uh, I think all those um, are part of the answer. Uh, definitely, the shipping time is mm-hmm. so, is is nothing. So uh, you can wait longer uh, on on the tree. Yeah, ripen and, it. And yeah, and they're, and they're stored for a less period of time, so they're not in the water because they're going to be shipped in the water. Otherwise, they're not going to be flown. The, the weather here, um, all along that coast, it, it, it just gets this perfect combination of sea, uh, mild, sure. but not too hot. And um, and there's and the, the, one of the big things is avocados take a lot of water. And we still have some here, even though Southern California, it's real expensive. So you need a fair amount of water to grow avocados. Well, and, you know, Earl, that's good that, to know. That's awesome. And, you know, the great thing is you can go out and try it yourself. If you if, When you're at yes. the store, buy a California avocado. If you see one there from another go. place, buy that too. And you'll really, you'll really get what Earl's been talking about. So go out and get yourself an avocado. Wait till it ripens. <laughs> Wait till it's turned a little bit dark, and it, you know, it's, and it has a nice, easy feel in your palm, so that just has a slight give. Heavy for its size. <laughs> and as Helga always reminds us, heavy for their size. There and, you go. And Earl, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much for being on. Thank hey, you, my Earl. Pleasure. Thank Thanks, you, Earl. Good talking to you. You too. Bye now. Bye. That's that's phenomenal. Yes, can, they are right now. Can you buy them? You can you can ripen them on your counter. You can. It's the best way to ripen them on your counter at room temperature. Uh-huh. And, and you mentioned a few weeks back at a show that you actually even slap them on your barbecue, right? Oh, they're amazing grilled. But just a t- you slice them up or ha- just half with the seed out, and just a teeny little bit. I do canola because it's kind of a nondescript oil, and then it's just enough to keep them from uh, burning, sticking. Yeah, yeah. sticking. What's your favorite? Way of eating them, Sita. Oh, raw. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right there. <laughs> just with a little bit of salt and depending on my mood, a little bit of lime juice. That is all they need. Nice, yeah. Yeah, try it on toast. It's really an amazing toast spread to a perfect avocado over fresh toast with this little bit of salt and maybe some arugula. That's my morning sandwich. So good. There's nothing else you need. Has the fat and the flavor and everything else. Wonderful. Well, packed show. We're almost out of time. We are out of time, actually. It goes by so quickly. (laughs) Now we are. I loved the conversation with Terry Tempest-Williams, though. She is such a poetic woman. Even speaking with her, I mean, obviously her books are poetic, but she has such a lyrical way of talking about her experience of the world. And, you know, Mark, when you you said so much of what you got from the book was the theme of let go and... She said that she discovered her mother's journals on the full moon. Mm -hmm. And the full moon is the time when we release things. Mm -hmm. So I see, I see a, a, um, a story there. I see a, a story that was being told by the universe about what this specific event meant. So new moon creating your intentions, full moon releasing. Letting go. Letting yeah. go, wow. Yeah, what stuck out for me was her comment that if men knew what women remember, they would love them differently. Mm-hmm. On that note, um, that thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> that was this week's edition of Negative Conversation. Thanks for listening. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye. Bye bye.